Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Leadership Trademark Podcast. In today's episode, we would like to give you some ideas on how to deal with uncertainty among uh, the teams, as well as the feelings around uncertainty using some example on real-time assessment. So for that reason, Leslie, Roz, and myself are very excited to welcome back Kevin Quinn and also welcome Michael Goldman, president of Facilitation First. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Sylvia, Leslie, and Roz. Nice to be here. Great. So, Michael, our overall topic is engagement at work. And our lens today is engaging during uncertainty, as I mentioned. So can you relate to this idea of uncertainty in the modern workplace? Yeah, I sure can. Um, you know, on one hand, living in Canada gives us a lot of certainty. I mean, from my own personal perspective, you know, I live in a civil society where I have a consistent address. And for most of us, some kind of job where we can expect a certain income. And I have a social community that I can call on. And just as I can be fairly certain about these things, there's also equal uncertainty in terms of, will my job last? Uh, will I continue to receive the same or greater income as I age? Um, will I be able to do something that I like or love doing in the future as I move forward? Will I like the people I work with? And can they be trusted to pull their weight? You know, as, as humans, we can expect in, you know, this kind of the Buddhist philosophy to suffer about what we are uncertain and to some extent what we are certain about, but the level of suffering is dependent on how we choose to respond to these events. And so myself as a consultant, as a gig worker, running my own business for most of my working life, I've definitely felt fear at times that the economy would tank and all my business would therefore be gone and our skill area facilitation of training would be taken on by others and would be driven internally within an organization uh, organization, and therefore limiting my access to to work as an external consultant. So it's been kind of scary, you know, at times. Well, and I have a feeling that those fears became a reality a few years ago. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. My worst fears of, uh, and fears of my associates like Kevin were realized when COVID-19 struck. We were shut out of our face-to-face -face training. Organizations stopped doing any training. Literally, my company lost thousands of dollars in work because we were doing a lot of in-person training. And they all started to depend on their own internal people to teach and facilitate, leaving, again, less for work for us where we're external facilitators. However, the crazy thing is even with what I thought would be disastrous events for us, we managed to survive these calamities, and we continue to thrive as a business. Oh, tell us more. So, How did you handle that? Well, I have a metaphor you might be able to relate to. Um, we were, we are, and we're like the little engine that could. This is like a children's book by Waddy Piper. I don't know if you've heard of it, but my kids loved it. We read it to them when they were smaller, and 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 this is how we did it. You know, we kept our costs down. Uh, we used to have a, our own office, but now we all work remote. And when we do meet, the focus is not on discussing work, but having fun and sharing our life stories and sharing about our families and what's going on. So, Michael, 
that makes my heart sing. And it's a very inspiring story because I am seeing in your body language and your tone that you were authentic, that it was spooky. But more importantly, what I'm hearing is that your engagement to your purpose in delivering what you do must have been super high during this uncertainty. But how does that work for others? Well, you know, I think, you know, for me, there's several reasons. You know, first, you got to, I have a great team. Uh, what you don't know is both my parents, I lost both my parents to COVID at the beginning of COVID. And so it was incredibly difficult period of time. Kevin, my other colleagues, my staff, they got together and they worked together and they created online training and they did this all on their own. So what do leaders need to do in order to kind of drive this kind of momentum? I think, you know, is giving them a voice. I think from the beginning, very much from the beginning, I've empowered my employees to really exercise their competence and maximize their competence. So what they bring to the table, what they do well is, you know, I trust them. And of course there are failures. And when there were failures, we didn't look at them as failures. We looked at them as what did we learn from this? How can we improve? What can be better? And we'd sit down I'd listen to them, and, and again, I was very facilitative. Instead of telling them what they needed to do, right. I'd say, tell me about what happened and what do you think you could do better next time? And so I, you know, I give them the floor. <laughs> Most of the time, my staff would come up with incredible ideas. The thing I had to be careful about was I had ideas already in my head of what they should yeah. do. Yeah. I had to literally put them aside and just say, Mike, you got to listen to what they're saying. Right. And, and, and then maybe your ideas will be relevant, but it needs to come from them because they so, got to own it. They got to take accountability. So what I'm hearing you say when I listen and then add it to what I think is that you used your emotional intelligence to include them and you were compassionate. And, and they did the same thing back to me, you know? I, I well, would say you know, that, the old yeah. story is you get what you give. Yeah, good point. I mean, exactly. it's not that hard. I've but met Michael's I, parents, both of them, and gone out socially with them. And when he lost them, both in a, within two weeks, and his sister was taking care of them, he didn't even get to see them when they died. I, my compassion for Michael, who is in some senses my boss, just just grew enormous within me and and the same was with uh, another colleague that we drove this change and i brought in all the best my best thinking then came out because i thought how can i help and so we needed to do something instantly and so i brought in project management um rapid development ideas and and we met every every week uh and had scrums and all, used all the modern tools of of process improvement and rapid development and and I'm, I don't know if Michael wanted to do that. It was almost like he, he I knew. Uh, he, see, we talk to other leaders about biting your tongue when you've got ideas, because, of course, senior leaders are going to have a lot of great ideas. And he he's the business owner. He's made tough choices and lived by them. And 
and lived and done really well because so he knows he's got good a good sense and he had these ideas but he's just saying to us and i can vouch for this that he he didn't tell us what to do we told him what to do because we figured he was out of it for a while he really was you know and and for a leader to be confident enough to let go wow that's at the pinnacle of leadership if you ask me thanks kevin i really appreciate that uh and I have incredibly competent people around me who continue to want to learn and engage. But again, what's important from, you know, I think Raj, you hit it, emotional intelligence. I think that absolutely is really important. And making sure that my staff constantly have a voice and have an ability to say, you know what, I don't like that, I challenge that, and my curiosity, my willingness to hear it without judgment, but like, tell me more, I think is what drives that really good partnership between myself as a leader and those I work with. Roz, I also heard your, your in, implicit in your question was, so is this just about this dream company that Michael created? And uh, last week we heard Leslie talk about how, in fact, most companies have like 25% at most employees who feel kind of empowered at the level that I felt and that my colleagues felt. <laughs> so can, can they get there or is this just a, is this just the, the landscape that there's only a few of us who do it well? And I think we can get there. And I think that Gallup names some of the things we can do. And we, at I work with Michael and other colleagues to help leaders get to that level of empowering or, or engaging their staff despite the uncertainty that they face in their businesses and, and our organizations. So, Kevin, my head is starting to hurt. <laughs> I want to go back to Michael for a minute. Um, and I want to say, if, Mike, there was one thing, just one thing um, that you needed to remember to make meetings or conversations or engagements go well, what would that be? One thing. Oh, that's a tough one. I, I would say because it's it's there is one thing from me as the facilitator. There is one thing And I'm me, asking that from your point of view. Yeah, from from me from my perspective is being clear about the outcomes okay. of what needs to be achieved okay. because how we get there, even in the meeting, after I planned everything, even if that is thrown up the window, at least I know where ultimately yeah. we need to be at the end of the day. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing you say is regardless of the group or the topic or the purpose or whatever, um, the one thing that you remember to do in these engagements is to actually uh, meet them at their bus stop, to be interested in them, and to be very clear and not challenge their ideas, but say, well, that's good. And to be clear, the purpose of this is this. So that takes their uncertainty away and their embarrassment, because in the sea of change, Nobody's very sure. Yeah. And in my experience, yeah. the leaders are less sure than the followers because the the changes that are hitting are hitting at 
the capability skill silo level. And the leader probably doesn't have the skill to know what that means or may not have enough of it or may not understand it well enough. So what I'm hearing you say is that you stay with your purpose as a leader or facilitator to keep them engaged regardless of whether the outcome is met because what is met is some real input and then people feel included and then down goes the uncertainty up goes the certainty and then you can then you can drill down into the roles the responsibilities the tools the whatnot you know again if i've done a good job and the client is willing i've flushed out many different things including what the outcomes or purpose is for the actual yeah. meeting yeah uh with the client and but you know sometimes i don't get that chance and so i end up in a meeting and i start with saying i'm setting the context and i identify what the outcomes are and i'm looking around i'm seeing some body language that is showing yeah. that this is not really what they're expecting and so as a facilitator, yes, I could just say, well, this is what my client said, and I got to go through with that. But I also recognize that if I don't touch base with the people in right. the group right. who I'm facilitating and ratify or check in and get agreement on the purpose and the outcomes, then I may be putting them on a bus directed to the wrong outcome. Right. And that will frustrate them and or shut them down. So one of the things Kevin and I do you know, very early on in setting the context of any meeting is we identify what the outcomes and the purpose are, but we check in with the group and say, is this right? Do you agree with this? Mm -hmm. And if it isn't right, then we have to have a discussion in order to really flush out what are the true outcomes that we need to move forward with. And then the buy-in goes up. The certainty goes up. Huge. So I once, Mike, got hired to deal with the team of about 60 independent guys who were like cowboys. Okay. So you yeah. went to pick all men. And I was told at the beginning that three different consultants had come in there and failed and blah, blah, blah. So I said, it's okay. I know how to do this. Anyway, it comes the morning of, I've insisted it be out of town, nice place, windows, circle, Box of Kleenex between each chair, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I thought, okay, what do I wear? How do I start? Who are they? So I thought, well, they're cowboys. So I got out my cowboy boots. Now, they weren't cowboys, but it's that attitude, right? They're independent experts with their trucks, not horses. So I put on my cowboy boots and my jeans and my cowboy belt, and my cowboy shirt, and I waited till everybody was seated. And then I went and I stuck my fingers in the front of my jeans, which is what it's a signal. And I said, well, hi, everybody. I bet you're all wondering, what is this babe from Toronto going to do to us? Well, the place cracked up. And I said very little, but I asked a lot of questions. And at the end of it, we rewrote three union contracts 
everybody apologized and it worked. I really didn't do much. I mean, I had a process. Well, what you did the most importantly was instead of telling them what needs to be done, you ask them. And that move from the tell to the ask, though very subtle, um, makes a huge difference in empowering folks and raising the level of engagement within groups. Right. What is really relevant to engagement, the the landscape we're talking about here is kind of where it's working. Most meetings, most interactions, most collaborations between leaders and their staff do not have anything like this. They start with the leader not even being sure, saying, uh, uh, we need a meeting on, you know, uh, our performance in the last quarter. And they don't say what exactly is going to be discussed. They just say, if they say anything, <laughs> sometimes they don't say anything. We're having a meeting on Tuesday. And that's all they say. If they say something, they might say it's about performance. They don't say, and what we help them to say is much more precise and prescribed uh, what it's about and what the outcome is going to be. So mm-hmm. instead of saying it's about performance, it might be, we'd like to identify the the three top gaps in our performance and come up with action plans for taking uh, some fixes for those. Uh, that is so far from what normally happens that it really doesn't take much to overcome the big question we're asking is how can we get that 25% engagement up to like 90% engagement. One of the first steps is to to tell people that you're going to talk with what you want to talk about so that they yeah. can bring the best of themselves to the conversation rather than and, and, in the dark. Go. And I'd like to add that happens even in the agenda. You know, typically when I see agendas, uh, the agenda is just a list of items they're going to talk about. Uh, in our agendas that we sent out, we don't even we don't only put in the activities. We also identify what's the expected result from each activity, who will be leading it, what, and also what pre-reading do you need to prep for this? But more importantly, we actually also include the facilitated questions that we're going to be asking. So for those people who are introverted, they actually know, okay, for this topic, they're going to be asking this and this, hmm, I better think about this. So I don't feel like off put or shut down when that question is asked. We give those folks a time to actually prep and, and to provide certainty for them when they walk into that uh, session, they have, they have a sense of what's coming up as opposed to just a list of kind of ambiguous topics. Right. If we had to tell people what the magic is of getting people more engaged, it would be a little word we use, an acronym we use called POP. And POP stands for purpose, outcome, and process. Michael was just describing the process of the meeting, how how we'll ask questions, what questions we will ask, and who's responsible. But And earlier, he was talking about the outcome, what we hope to achieve in the meeting, and the purpose is, well, what exactly then is the meeting about? If you have anything like that, even a mediocre and vague purpose, outcome, and process, your meeting will be twice or three times as good as meetings without them. If you get good at specifying the purpose and outcome and making the outcome really precise and scoping it right for the time you have available, then your meeting will kind of become famous. I've worked with people who've fed back that, you know, well, uh, yeah, we were in a meeting the other day, but it wasn't like one of uh, like Joe's meetings that he's been through your course. So this really does, it's not hard to implement. 
Um, so it really appealed to, and you don't have to come to our courses. <laughs> you can have that one for free. Oops, so, Michael, shouldn't say that. It sounds like, <laughs> like the key is to clarify the purpose of and the outcome um, as, as the basic. It, it's so basic. It's so foundational. Um, and again, pop Kevin came up with that was, you know, because we're always trying to come up with acronyms that help us even remember what are the most important elements and pop purpose outcomes process. By the way, I also heard other people are talking about. And so it seems to be a common acronym that's uh, that has been generated. I thought we were the first ones coming coming up with it, but apparently it's happened before. But regardless who where this came from. It, when I walk into a meeting, I'm always judging the effectiveness of the meeting by if a pop is present or not. So what happens then, uh, Kevin and Michael, what, what happens if the participants don't ratify? What, what if they don't agree on yeah. the purpose and outcome? Right. Kevin, do you want to take this? People, uh, leaders that we, we talk with and, and make this proposal to, they should check in and see if people agree with it. They say, I, I don't want to do that. What if they don't agree? And that, so that's a real fear. And, but here's the scenario. Let's say that, that half the people or even a few people don't agree with what you're proposing that you're going to do in your meeting. Mm -hmm. Would you rather know about that after the meeting when you hear them going down the hall grumbling about the stupid meeting and the stupid decisions and how you're not going to tell your staff about that. You're not going to do that. Or would you rather have that fight if it's a fight or that negotiation up front? So it's actually, it's a win-win whether they agree with it or whether they disagree with it. If they disagree with it, what's the thing we say, Michael? We are, again, hey, question. So tell me, yeah, tell me, tell me more. Tell me more. You know, again, we, we, we're constantly pulling, not pushing. We're not creating resistance. We're right. letting the resistance arrive and deal with it. And any leader can do that, which leads us then to probably the next question people are saying, well, sometimes I can't ask the question because there's some things that are, are locked in. There's some things that we have to do. I don't want to make it like we can change things that are already established. There's lots of, lots of us work in rule-based organizations where the guardrails are very firm and that leads to another thing that we advocate leaders to do, which is to check with themselves, what is the level that I can ask people about here? Is this, is this a meeting where I really want their input and, and they can give it with certainty that that will influence the outcome? Or is it more of a briefing or tell? Michael, if you don't mind, would you describe these levels, please? Yeah, it's really around decision-making authority or power that we give to people to make decisions. And, you know, when one of the things that we've learned over the years is there's essentially four levels of empowerment, which uh, were that kind of vary from where people don't feel they have any power to where they have full power mm -hmm. to make a decision. So at level one, essentially, the power that's given to the group is really just the ability to ask Question. So this is where a leader is very clear about who, what, where, why, and when has made the decision and is holding the event or the session to just really relay what's going on, but also address questions for clarification. The reason this still is a level of power is because less power would be Oh, I heard that my leader made a decision through the grapevine and there was no chance to ask questions. 
So level one does have some power in the sense that we can ask questions. And if it's a good leader, if it's a leader with good EQ, uh, that leader is listening to the types of questions people are asking and noticing if there's certainty or uncertainty in the environment and realizing how they need to communicate in turn or what more they need to top up the group with in order to bring them to a level of clear understanding. At level two of, of power or decision-making authority, this is where the leader has an idea, but before they implement it, they just want to get some feedback, some consultative feedback with the group, get their input. Like, what do you like about this idea? Uh, what don't you like about this idea? And what would you like to see different? At this level, for it to be a true level two, the leader should be taking in the feedback and incorporating yeah. it into the decision. It's a false level two of empowerment where they ask people, hey, what do you need done? What should change here? And they never implement anything. It's really just a level one. And they're just doing it to make people feel like they're collaborating and part of the decision. That will create uncertainty with people. That will lower the chances of, of the leader getting participation and true accountability from the group. Level three is where the rubber hits the road, accountability starts changing, because this is where the leader gives the group a chance to make a decision, but more, it's more of a recommendation. So come back to me with an idea on how to improve quality in how we deliver our services, okay? And the group gets together, sometimes the leader will be involved in that, and they all come to an idea, but ultimately the leader or upper management has final decision-making authority. What's very important about this stage in level four, which I'm going to talk about, is that the upper management or who the, whom the person is that makes the final decision, they must be very clear with the group or individual that here's all the non-negotiables. Like, here's the budget. Here's, right. Here are the resources we're willing to give. So they have to be very clear about that because you want that rotation coming they forward. They can't implement. And then say... That's right. And say to them, oh, well, you know what? You went over budget. Well, right. it's like, uh, there right. was a budget? I didn't know that. So we want to make sure that if we're going to empower people at level three, we want to make sure they understand what the non-negotiable is for. And, of course, level four is we give full decision-making authority over and to they the do group. It. And they do it. Right? So, Michael, I'm just going to do four sentences. I had an experience a number of years ago. I can't tell you the company. but um, I can tell you that uh, the leader of part of their infrastructure, they were dealing with huge technological changes on three different sites. It involved um, 500 people. So he called me and said, I need you to help me. I understand you know how to do this. I said, okay, so what do you want? He said, well, I want a survey. I said, oh. Well, I don't actually do surveys. And I said, tell me why you want a survey. He said, I have to cut. And it was a huge amount of money in my operating budget. And um, um, I don't know what my people do. So I said, oh, so why don't you ask them? <laughs> he said, oh, no, I don't know how to do that. I said, well, I do. Now, there were, in fact, six silos. So I worked with each silo. I asked them all the same questions. 
the purpose of that was really around, here's what's happening. What do you want to do? What do you know? And what are your ideas? And we built it over a number of months. So then each group came back and said, okay, here's our recommendations. And I said, perfect. So I went to the leader and I said, okay, we're ready to go. He said, what now? I said, rent this place. You come, they come. We all the senior guys in there and nobody can talk. And each of these nine teams is going to present to you the solution to your problem. Well, aside from the fact that it was a standing ovation, within two months, the budget was cut. Nobody lost their job. Everybody was happy. And the performance doubled. And I lived right that experience. Right asking on, so cool. the same nine questions to nine groups over about six months and 500 people all had a chance to answer. So this, this is a really good example where at a level three, yes. where you, you went to the group, right? Uh, the group felt imp they felt they had enough power to come yeah. back with a recommendation, but right. ultimately this leader made the final decision, right? Well, yes. And you have to understand that, we were talking about the skill set of change around technology. Okay, I can barely use the car keys. I mean, technology, I don't know. But these people were superstars around this stuff, even more than the senior leader. So once they understood the parameters and they were given the permission to make the recommendations, and of course, they wanted to keep their jobs. They didn't want to feel frightened that they were going to be part of the cut. And all of the solutions were adopted because the the staff themselves, the the people who had to make the changes, owned the changes. It, this really reminds me of a process that Jack Welsh used to use called yes. Workout. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So brilliant, yeah. brilliant process. And I love it because it really gives the power to the people. But ultimately, yeah. at the end of the day, what I love is that the leader recognized the competence of the people and realized that, you know, what what they're coming up with, I probably need to follow through on it because they're the ones who have the competence. Right. Is that true? And, and I think what he really recognized is that he had to do it or he was going to lose his job <laughs> and he didn't know how to. And he also needed to be able to trust a process, which he didn't know how to do. Right. It's okay? scary. There is a well, scary right there. Right. Well, let me ask you this, Russ. Sorry to take over the questioning here. It's but okay. I'm wondering what what changed for this person that you believe helped for him to own the process, to take on the process. Okay. So I think what changed for him, and he did tell me like later, but not at the time, but I could smell it. I could feel it. I could feel us engaging was that he finally did not feel alone. Mm -hmm. And he finally did not feel that he had to know what to do because he was alone. And he didn't know what to do. And 
the president of the company, well, it was bigger than that, was a really scary guy who wasn't going to take I don't know for an answer. So his own, his own ego, his own comfort zone, his own certainty had to rely on people. Who, and he didn't know what they did. And he's not supposed to know what they did because they did it. But with this change, what they did had to convert to a savings of a huge amount of money in one quarter. So I think that's what it was. Right. So I didn't really do anything except ask 500 people each nine questions and um, then say, okay, well, go ahead, get her done, bring them together, spend a lot of the company's money on this three day conference. But it was a drop in the bucket compared to what we saved. And there was no jobs lost. Wow. Yep. And he was a happy camper. I remember afterwards, he said, how the hell did you do that? And I said to him, I can't say his name. I said, well, I did what I do. You did what you do. My question of you is, how the hell do you do your job? Because I have no clue. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I said, we could sit here and I can tell you, but I said, you're going to get really bored and you don't like it. And I don't really want to know how you do your job because if I did know and I wanted to do it, I'd have it. It was really, really amazing. Yeah. It's a good example of, of creating certainty with uncertainty. Exactly. So all we know for sure is we don't know. <laughs> so if we did know, what do we want? What are you willing to do? Tell me your actions. Sign on the line. Let's go. Yep. And stop whining. <laughs> Giving people the, the permission to say what they need to say, but also providing a good process or a good set of questions. Right. Is really helpful to help guide these kinds of uncertain discussions. And, and Mike, I know that you know, and I think we all know this, that it's a fantasy that a leader has power. They don't have any power. They only have the power of their ability to engage the people who follow them to do the work that has to be done. Now, if you have a leader that has power, now you're into a, Kevin, what's the word? I don't want to, I don't want to get political here, but if you don't do what I say, I'm going to shoot you or you're going to fall out of a plane. Murder. Autopsy. Well, command and control. Yeah. <laughs> so. This was a wonderful discussion and what a great example. Thank you for sharing, Roz. And thank you to our guests here today. Welcoming Kevin Bach and uh, Michael. Uh, what a great pleasure to meet you and a wonderful discussion on, on um, you know, a topic that, you know, dealing with uncertainty is uncertain and uh, and we've learned a lot. Thank you for sharing the tools, both of you. Leslie, Thank you for co-hosting this uh, great episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you for listening to episode nine of Leadership Trademark Podcast. For our next episode, episode 10, we will be inviting Michael and Kevin back to share with us tools on how do leaders communicate effectively. Thank you and see you next time.